If you're enjoying this Crush Step 1 podcast, you can now get the content along with the content of the Med Prep to Go Step 1 Questions podcast ad-free in one bundle. Just go to medpreptogo.com and find our new subscription podcast called the Med Prep to Go Step 1 Bundle. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I'm Ted O'Connell, one of the authors of Crush Step 1, the ultimate USMLE Step 1 review, along with my co-authors, Ryan Pedigo and Thomas Blair. I am also the chief content officer for Inside the Boards. This is a Crush Step 1 podcast based on the second edition of our best-selling book. The goal is to provide you high yield and high quality audio content of the book to help you study on the go and reclaim some of the time in your day tubular and interstitial disease, azotemias, urinary tract infections, tumors, congenital disease, chronic disease, and osteodystrophy. Tubular and interstitial disorders. This section will discuss acute tubular necrosis, drug-induced interstitial nephritis, renal papillary necrosis, and diffuse cortical necrosis. Acute tubular necrosis, or ATN, occurs when tubules of the nephron die because of a lack of blood flow, ischemic ATN, the most common type, or from drugs that cause kidney damage to the point of necrosis, nephrotoxic ATN. In both cases, the nephrons that are shedded will be lost into the urine, leading to microscopic findings of muddy brown casts. Ischemic ATN The kidney requires a constant supply of blood, and any condition that significantly diminishes blood flow and therefore oxygen to the kidney will result in ischemic ATN. Usually, hypovolemia will be the precipitating factor, such as in hypovolemic shock from hemorrhage. Treatment is aimed at correcting the underlying cause of the low renal perfusion. Nephrotoxic ATN There are many nephrotoxic agents. The most common two are aminoglycoside antibiotics, e.g. gentamicin, and iodinated radiocontrast agents, such as those used in contrast-enhanced CT scans. Treatment is aimed at adjusting or discontinuing the responsible medication or medications and providing supportive care. Drug-induced interstitial nephritis is triggered by a drug, as the name implies, and causes inflammation in the interstitium of the kidney often starting one to two weeks after beginning a drug. The mnemonic FARE, F-A-R-E, can be used as a memory aid to remember the symptoms. Fever, arthralgias, rash, and eosinophilia. Common offenders include penicillins and sulfa drugs. Treatment is simply stopping the inducing drug. 
Renal papillary necrosis is characterized by necrosis of the renal papilla, which is the innermost tip of the medulla and therefore the last section of the kidney to receive oxygen and nutrients. Recall that the paratubular capillaries run downward after the glomerulus. Renal papillary necrosis occurs most often after chronic acetaminophen, aspirin, or NSAID use, called analgesic nephropathy. In those with sickle cell disease, sickle formation in the ischemic medullary papilla leads to occlusion and infarction. Infections such as acute pyelonephritis and systematic diseases such as diabetes mellitus can also cause this. Diffuse cortical necrosis, see figure 15.23. This is a rare occurrence that causes necrosis of the outer parts of the kidneys, the cortex. This occurs almost exclusively during obstetric emergencies such as abruptio placentae, but can also be seen in sepsis. It is thought that disseminated intravascular coagulation, or DIC, is implicated in this disease, but the mechanism of cortical death is unknown. In figure 15.23, coagulation necrosis has occurred in the cortical area of the kidney only. Renal tubular acidosis Renal tubular acidosis, or RTA, refers to the metabolic acidosis caused by the inability of the kidneys to secrete acid or reabsorb bicarbonate adequately to regulate the body pH. The diagnosis of RTA implies that the degree of tubular dysfunction in acid-base regulation is out of proportion to the degree of renal failure. Type 1 RTA In type 1 RTA, or distal RTA, the collecting tubules, specifically the alpha-intercalated cells in the distal nephron are unable to secrete protons and reclaim potassium. This leads to a normal anion gap hypokalemic metabolic acidosis, and also a risk of developing calcium oxalate kidney stones because of the alkalotic urine. Remember that the kidneys are unable to acidify the urine, so the urine is alkalotic and the body is acidotic from retained acids. The pH of the urine is alkaline at greater than 5.5. Type 2 RTA. In type 2 RTA, or proximal RTA, the proximal tubules are unable to reabsorb bicarbonate from the urine, leading to bicarbonate wasting of the urine and therefore metabolic acidosis from loss of base. This can be a standalone disease, but more often occurs in Fanconi syndrome, in which the entire proximal tubule is dysfunctional. Recall that the normal functions of the proximal tubule make these symptoms logical. Rickets from hypovitaminosis D and the inability to reabsorb phosphate, acidosis from bicarbonate wasting, and decreased sodium reabsorption, leading to RAA axis activation and hypokalemia from increased distal nephron sodium reuptake. Type 2 RTA will have acidic urine with pH less than 5.5 because although the proximal tubule cannot reabsorb bicarbonate, the downstream alpha-intercalated cells are still intact and can secrete proton to try and compensate for the acidosis. Whereas the previous types of RTA were characterized by tubular dysfunction, type 4 RTA, aldosterone failure, is not a problem with the tubules at all. It is a consequence of hypoaldosteronism, or low aldosterone, or aldosterone resistance, such as in those taking spironolactone. Recall that aldosterone allows the distal nephron to reabsorb sodium at the expense of secreting potassium and hydrogen ions. 
lack of aldosterone, therefore, will cause sodium not to be reabsorbed and hypotension, and also results in the inability to excrete potassium, resulting in hyperkalemia and hydrogen ions acidosis. Interestingly, the acidosis may be exacerbated in patients with concurrent hyperkalemia, caused by reduced ammonia secretion. Cells have a proton-potassium exchanger. The hyperkalemia causes excess potassium to move into the cell with proton exiting. This intracellular alkalosis inhibits ammoniogenesis. The reduced urinary level of ammonia associated with hypoaldosterone-induced hyperkalemia leads to reduced proton buffering in the urine, hence acidic urine and low urine pH, typically less than 5.5. You may wonder about type 3 RTA. It's simply a combination of types 1 and 2. Azotemia and renal failure The term azotemia implies that there are high serum levels of nitrogen-containing waste products, especially urea, measured by the blood urea nitrogen, or BUN. Azotemia in general is caused by a lack of filtration by the kidney, but that can be caused by a lack of blood flow to the kidney in pre-renal azotemia. The kidney itself is damaged and unable to filter properly renal azotemia, or urine produced by the kidney is unable to leave the body and backs up into the ureters and kidney, preventing proper function, post-renal azotemia. Differentiating among these three disorders is important because it gives a clue about the underlying cause of the decreased renal function and how best to manage it. The determination of pre-renal azotemia, problem being before the kidney, versus renal azotemia, problem in the kidney, versus post-renal azotemia, problem after the kidney, is often elucidated by the BUN to creatinine ratio urine-sodium level, and the fractional excretion of sodium, or FENA. Remember that urea can be reabsorbed by the kidney, but creatinine cannot. This will become important in understanding the BUN to creatinine ratios. See Table 15.6 for the characteristics of pre-renal, renal, and post-renal azotemia. The fractional excretion of sodium, or the FENA, or FENA, is simply a measure of the percentage of sodium filtered by the nephron that is excreted in the urine. In azotemia, if the FENA is low, less than 1%, the nephron is actively trying to reclaim all of the sodium possible and is able to do so. If it is higher, it is possible that the nephrons are dysfunctional and unable to reclaim sodium properly. Pre-renal azotemia in pre-renal azotemia, there is not enough blood going to the normal functioning kidney to allow for adequate GFR, leading to a buildup of waste products. The reduced renal perfusion may be caused by hypovolemia, poor cardiac output, e.g. cardiomyopathy, congestive heart failure, severe aortic valvular dysfunction, pericardial effusions, renal artery stenosis, or medications that cause afferent arteriolar vasoconstriction or efferent arteriolar vasodilation. Other causes can include hepatorenal syndrome, a serious disorder caused by cirrhosis and the subsequent hemodynamic changes can lead to poor renal perfusion. The serum creatinine level will increase because of the decreased overall GFR, but all the creatinine that is filtered is excreted because the creatinine is not reabsorbed. 
However, urea can go back into the bloodstream because it is freely diffusible and can be reabsorbed. The low flow through the nephron caused by low perfusion allows for more time for the urea to move back into the bloodstream, leading to a significantly increased BUN with a smaller increased creatinine, which results in the BUN-creatinine ratio greater than 15 to 1. Next, because of the low volume state, the RAA axis is fully active, leading to low urine sodium from increased sodium reabsorption to promote volume expansion. The urine will be concentrated because ADH is also present to reabsorb the water. Renal azotemia. In renal azotemia, there is intrinsic renal parenchymal dysfunction, which can be tubular, for example, ATN or interstitial nephritis, glomerular, for example, glomerular nephritis, or vascular in the vasculitis. Although the BUN and creatinine levels are both elevated, the BUN to creatinine ratio is similar to what is seen in a normal patient, namely less than 15 to 1, because both the BUN and creatinine are elevated to the same degree. This is because the functioning nephrons are not in a low-flow state, as in pre-renal azotemia, with not as much time to reabsorb BUN. Damage to the tubules also prevents reabsorption of BUN. Additionally, the damaged kidney does not reabsorb sodium as efficiently. The phena and urine sodium levels will be elevated as sodium remains in the urine. Postrenal azotemia. In postrenal azotemia, there is enough blood flow to the kidney, and the kidney is, at least initially, functioning normally, but there is a urinary tract obstruction preventing formed urine from leaving the body. This can be anywhere in the lower urinary tract, a ureteral obstruction if bilateral, a bladder outlet obstruction, or a urethral obstruction, and is usually caused by benign prostatic hyperplasia, BPH, in older men. Treatment is aimed at the underlying cause, draining the urine, for example, Foley catheterization in those with BPH. The BUN to creatinine ratio is more than 15 to 1, similar to pre-renal azotemia, but for a different reason. Urinary blockage increases back pressure in the kidney, decreasing the GFR, but there is a low flow state because the urine cannot exit out of the kidney, leading to urea reabsorption and increased BUN. Prolonged blockage, however, leads to intrinsic renal damage and renal failure with laboratory values similar to those of renal azotemia. Urinary tract infections. Almost all UTIs are ascending infections, that is, the normally present bacteria in the perineal area, mostly E. coli from fecal material, start around the urethra and climb up the urethra into the bladder causing cystitis, eventually trying to climb further up into the ureters and kidneys, pyelonephritis. See figure 15.25. Because the urethra is significantly shorter in women, women are at a higher risk for UTIs. Because cystitis and pyelonephritis are characterized by painful urination, dysuria, frequency and urgency, as well as bacteriuria, meaning bacteria in the urine. Because the kidneys are highly vascular, when bacteria reach them in pyelonephritis, the bacteria have the opportunity to enter the bloodstream leading to fevers, chills, nausea, and vomiting, and the possibility for sepsis, termed urosepsis because of the sepsis is of urinary origin. 
In addition, with pyelonephritis, the inflamed kidneys will be tender, leading to costovertebral or CVA angle tenderness and flank pain. With cystitis, on the other hand, there is generally no fever because the bacteria are confined to the bladder. Because the urethra is part of the urinary tract, inflammation can occur here too, termed urethritis. However, this is usually caused by a sexually transmitted infection characterized by dysuria and urethral discharge. Usually, this is caused by chlamydia or gonorrhea. Gonorrhea will display gram-negative diplococci on staining of the discharge, whereas chlamydia, because it is intracellular, will not stain. The stain will not reach the bacteria. Finally, the prostate can be inflamed, termed prostatitis. The main clinical clue here is an exquisitely tender prostate on digital rectal exam. Although E. coli is the most common pathogen in UTIs at greater than 80%, other bacteria can be implicated. E. coli, greater than 80%, have pili that allow adhesion to the epithelial cells of the urethra. Staphylococcus saprophyticus, 5-10%, to implicated in sexually active young women. Klebsiella, Proteus, Pseudomonas, and Enterobacter species, implicated in those with urinary catheters in place. Malignancies and benign tumors of the urinary tract. There are a few important malignancies of the urinary tract. 1. Renal cell carcinoma. 2. Transitional cell carcinoma. and 3. Nephroblastoma. Renal cell carcinoma. Renal cell carcinoma, or RCC, is the most common malignancy affecting the kidney, with smoking being the most common risk factor because the kidney filters the carcinogenic substances. Another rare but important risk factor is von Hippel-Lindau disease. Patients with this disease can develop bilateral RCC. Histologically, the most common appearance of RCC is that of clear cell carcinoma caused by histologic appearance of vacuolated cells. See figure 15.26a. The tumor spreads hematogenously, unlike most carcinomas, which spread via lymphatics, by traveling through the renal vein to the IVC. It often metastasizes to the lung and bone as well. In the gross section of the RCC shown in figure 15.26b, a tumor in the renal vein can be seen causing thrombosis. Hemorrhagic areas of the tumor lead to hematuria and flank pain. The size often allows for a palpable mass to be felt. This triad should raise immediate suspicion for RCC. Because the kidney is involved in the endocrine system, perineoplastic syndromes can occur from ectopic hormone production, especially erythropoietin, causing secondary polycythemia. Transitional cell carcinoma The area from the renal calyces to the renal pelvis, ureters, and bladder is lined with transitional epithelium, which allows it to stretch, and therefore malignancies in this area are termed transitional cell carcinomas. The unique feature of this type of malignancy is the field effect, in which multiple primary tumors can arise simultaneously. This is because the carcinogens responsible are in the urine and bathe the entire urinary tract in carcinogens, leading to the development of multiple foci of malignancy in the urinary tract. Those carcinogens include smoking, just like RCC, 
but also aniline dyes used in the manufacture of some plastics and medications such as cyclophosphamide, a chemotherapeutic agent and immunosuppressant. Nephroblastoma, or Wilms tumor. Nephroblastoma is a rare malignancy occurring in children. Although rare, it is the most common primary renal tumor in children between the ages of 2 to 4 years. See figure 15.27. Although mostly sporadic, it can be associated with the WAGR syndrome, an acronym standing for Wilms tumor, aniridia, an absent iris, genitourinary abnormalities, and mental retardation. Nephroblastoma is also associated with Beckwith-Weedman syndrome, which is characterized by hemihypertrophy of the extremities, for example, one but not both arms with hypertrophy, and organomegaly. This tumor is derived from mesonephric mesoderm and has numerous histologic characteristics. 1. Primitive blastema cells, undifferentiated cells. 2. Primitive glomeruli and tubules and three, rhabdomyeloblasts, creating muscle and connective tissue strands. Grossly, the tumor appears as a large, tan-colored mass. Unlike RCC, there is often a palpable abdominal mass. Unique to nephroblastoma is that some of the cells can secrete renin, leading to hypertension. See figure 15.27. Angiomyolipomas. Angiomyolipomas are benign tumors of the kidney and, as the name implies, are composed of blood vessels, angio, smooth muscle, myo, and fat, lipo. A commonly tested association is with tuberous sclerosis, a rare genetic disease that causes benign tumor formation in multiple organs, developmental delay, and characteristic skin findings, adenoma sebaceum, a facial rash of reddish bumps that are angiofibromas and areas of hypomelanosis called ash leaf spots because of the lack of melanin causes an ashen appearance. Congenital and inherited renal disorders. There are a few congenital and inherited renal disorders that are important to know, especially polycystic kidney disease or PKD and horseshoe kidney. Polycystic kidney disease. Autosomal dominant PKD. This disease is characterized by a generalized abnormality of collagen, leading to numerous problems, especially multiple bilateral renal cysts that develop during adolescence and adulthood, with the eventual development of renal failure later in life. See figure 15.28a. These cysts can rupture, leading to localized peritonitis and flank pain if on the outside of the kidney, or hematuria if rupturing into the renal pelvis. Because it is a generalized collagen defect, other organs are affected. Berry aneurysms in the circle of Willis from arterial wall weakening, resulting in subarachnoid hemorrhage if ruptured, weakening of the colonic wall leading to diverticulosis, and mitral valve prolapse from valvular collagen abnormalities. Autosomal recessive PKD. PKD causes bilateral cystic disease that occurs during development in utero. Unfortunately, this severe disease is usually fatal. Normally, the kidneys of the fetus generate urine, which the fetus expels, becoming amniotic fluid. This fluid protects the fetus and also helps the lung develop when the fluid and the accompanying growth factors fill the lungs. Without functioning kidneys, 
oligohydramnios, decreased amniotic fluid, occurs, leading to Potter's sequence, the loss of the protective cushion with subsequent trauma leading to facial abnormalities, pulmonary hypoplasia because of decreased growth factors, and renal insufficiency. Autosomal recessive PKD is also associated with congenital hepatic fibrosis. Horseshoe kidney. Horseshoe kidney may be associated with Turner syndrome, genotype 45,X. Characterized by fusion of the kidneys at the lower pole forming a U-shape. As the kidneys ascend to their normal place in the retroperitoneum, the horseshoe kidney will get stuck on the inferior mesenteric artery. See figure 15.28b. Mnemonic. I'm a horseshoe. IMA for inferior mesenteric artery. Chronic kidney disease. Chronic kidney disease, or CKD, is becoming more and more common, with most causes linked to diabetes, hypertension, and glomerular diseases. CKD implies any chronic impairment in kidney function, but chronic renal failure, CRF, implies severe dysfunction. A normal GFR is 100 to 120 milliliters per minute, but patients with CRF will have a GFR less than 10 milliliters per minute, with some producing no urine at all. The hallmark of irreversible renal damage on imaging is small, shrunken kidneys. Remember the vital functions of the kidney already described, the changes in CRF can be understood. Fluid retention. Without the kidney's ability to regulate sodium and water balance, fluid overload and edema develop. Electrolyte disturbances. Hyperkalemia is particularly common because the kidney normally is responsible for the excretion of potassium. Also, because the kidney normally excretes fixed acids to maintain pH, a metabolic acidosis can occur. Phosphoric acid is one of those fixed acids, so hyperphosphatemia develops. Uremia. This is a consequence of nitrogenous waste product buildup, leading to altered mental status, uremic pericarditis, and platelet dysfunction because the byproducts prevent normal platelet aggregation. The patient will still have a normal platelet count. With severe uremia, it is possible for urea to be secreted in sweat in such high amounts that urea crystals develop on the skin, termed uremic frost for the white color. Anemia. The kidneys use hypoxic stimulus of the paratubular capillaries to release erythropoietin, which stimulates red blood cell production. Loss of this hormone leads to anemia. Renal osteodystrophy. Renal osteodystrophy encompasses a triad of 1. Osteomalacia, 2. Osteitis fibrosa cystica, and 3. Osteoporosis. Recall that the kidneys are responsible for the hydroxylation of vitamin D into its active form, 1,25-OH2-vitamin D, by 1-alpha-hydroxylase in the proximal tubule. In renal failure, vitamin D cannot be activated because of the decreased GFR. The vitamin D doesn't make it to the proximal tubule, and therefore osteomalacia occurs from hypovitaminosis D. This leads to decreased mineralization of the bone. Because vitamin D also acts to raise the calcium level by promoting GI absorption, hypocalcemia causes sustained PTH release and to attempt to correct it. This is termed secondary hyperparathyroidism, see chapter 9. 
The resultant hyperparathyroidism induces a high turnover of bone disease associated with increased bone reabsorption, lytic lesions, and hemorrhage into bones known as osteitis fibrosa cystica. Overly aggressive suppression of secondary hyperparathyroidism may lead to the opposite of high turnover bone disease, termed adynamic bone disease. Finally, the impaired mineralization and increased demineralization lead to osteoporosis and predisposes patients to pathologic fractures. Osteoporosis is further exacerbated by metabolic acidosis because proton ions are not effectively excreted by the kidney. More often, renal patients suffer from mixed bone lesions. Treatment. Treatment is multimodal. Dialysis targets many of the problems with volume and electrolyte disturbances, but pharmacologic therapy is important as well. Phosphate-binding agents, for example, civelomere, prevent phosphate absorption from the gut. Erythropoietin supplementation can correct low erythropoietin levels, and activated vitamin D supplementation can correct low levels of activated 125-OH2 vitamin D. And low-sodium diets can help slow volume overload. Pharmacology The main diuretic classes from most proximally acting to most distally acting are carbonic anhydrase inhibitors, osmotic agents, loop diuretics, thiazide diuretics, and potassium-sparing diuretics, see figure 15.29. Each class will be individually covered in detail. All diuretics increase the rate of urination, but each works in a different manner. All diuretics that provide increased delivery of sodium to the collecting tubule's principal cells will increase potassium wasting because some of that sodium will be absorbed at the expense of potassium caused by the sodium-potassium ATPase activity there. Carbonic anhydrase inhibitors, acetazolamide. Carbonic anhydrase catalyzes this reaction. Protons and bicarbonate go between H2CO3, which goes between H2O and CO2. This reaction is why there is a continuous gradient for potassium secretion and bicarbonate reabsorption into the proximal nephron by the sodium proton exchanger. The gradient is normally maintained by the action of carbonic anhydrase because once the potassium is secreted into the lumen, it binds with bicarbonate in the lumen. With the aid of carbonic anhydrase, it can become CO2 and H2O. The CO2 can then diffuse back into the proximal tubular cells, dissociating again into protons and bicarbonate ions, with the proton recycled into the lumen and the bicarbonate reabsorbed into the bloodstream. Blocking carbonic anhydrase, therefore, prevents this recycling and leads to bicarbonate wasting in the urine, see figure 15.30 causing a metabolic acidosis. Blockage of this pathway because it ultimately impedes the sodium-potassium exchanger also prevents sodium reabsorption. Uses For glaucoma, this decreases the aqueous humor secretion because the aqueous humor is bicarbonate-rich. For altitude sickness at high altitudes because the resultant metabolic acidosis causes compensatory hyperventilation by the lungs, a respiratory alkalosis, and improved oxygenation, and for alkalinization of the urine, as with toxic ingestion of acids, to keep the acid in the conjugate base, or charged form, and promote excretion. Side effects. 
causes a hyperchloremic non-anion gap metabolic acidosis. It is a sulfa drug and therefore contraindicated in those with sulfa allergies. Osmotic agents. Mannitol is a non-absorbable sugar that when given intravenously will be filtered through the glomeruli and act as an osmotic agent to keep water in the lumen of the nephron. This leads to increased urination or polyuria. This is similar to the mechanism of polyuria in diabetes, except endogenous glucose acts as the osmotic agent. While in the bloodstream, the mannitol acts as an osmotic agent there too, causing fluid to move into the extracellular fluid from the intracellular tissue, increased osmolarity of the ECF. For this reason, it is used in the treatment of cerebral edema to draw out the excess water. Uses Decreasing cerebral edema, promoting diuresis, and therefore renal clearance of certain drug overdoses. Side effects. Giving mannitol leads to a large expansion of the extracellular fluid because it draws water out of the cells via osmosis, potentially leading to or exacerbating existing congestive heart failure or pulmonary edema in those with poor cardiac and or renal function. With the increased diuresis, eventual dehydration is also a concern. Loop diuretics. Loop diuretics, for example, furosemide, torsemide, bumetanide, and ethacrinic acid, are potent high-volume diuretics that block the NKCC2 co-transporter in the thick ascending limb of the loop of Henle, with far-reaching implications. See figure 15.9. First, it causes increased delivery of sodium, potassium, and chloride it to the distal nephron. The distal nephron can absorb sodium at the expense of potassium, enhanced by aldosterone, leading to further potassium loss in the urine. Therefore, loop diuretics are potassium-wasting diuretics. Normally, some of the potassium that is pumped into the thick ascending limb cells leaks back into the lumen of the nephron via the potassium channels, leading to a more positive charge in the lumen. This positive charge enhances a paracellular reabsorption of calcium and magnesium, which are also positively charged. Therefore, blocking the NKCC2 pump prevents this, leading to a decreased ability to reabsorb calcium and magnesium, and potentially leading to hypocalcemia and hypomagnesemia. Uses Hypertension any edematous state in which unloading volume is advantageous, for example, congestive heart failure, hypoalbuminemia from any cause, hepatic failure, loss in urine, such as nephrotic syndrome, hypercalcemia, because loop diuretics have calciuretic effects. Side effects. A common mnemonic is ODANG, O-H-D-A-N-G, which can stand for ototoxicity, hypo, kalemia, calcemia, and magnesemia, dehydration, allergy, being a sulfa drug, except for the ethacrinic acid, nephritis, drug-induced interstitial, and gout. The reason for ototoxicity is that the ear uses the NKCC2 transporter to maintain proper endolymph and perilymph electrolyte concentrations. Blockage can lead to damage. Thiazide diuretics. 
Thiazide diuretics, for example, hydrochlorothiazide, or HCTZ, chlorthalidone, and metalazone, work in the distal convoluted tubule of the nephron on the NaCl cotransporter. See figure 15.10. Blockage of this transporter leads to increased sodium loss, but also to increased potassium loss because of the increased sodium delivery to the collecting tubule where, again, sodium is reclaimed at the expense of potassium caused by the sodium-potassium ATPase activity. Therefore, it is a potassium-wasting diuretic. As shown in figure 15.10, sodium and calcium are both cations and therefore competing for uptake in the distal convoluted tubule cell. Both can't be reabsorbed because cell voltage would become too positive. There is not enough of a gradient. Blockage of sodium reuptake here by thiazide diuretics leads to increased calcium reabsorption. Uses Hypertension, hypercalciuria, thiazides will help reclaim calcium from the urine, the opposite effect as a loop diuretic, nephrogenic diabetes insipidus. It is ironic that a thiazide diuretic, which produces more urine, would be used to treat nephrogenic diabetes insipidus because lack of ADH responsiveness already leads to increased urination of pure water. With thiazide diuretics, there is now water and sodium loss, leading the body to activate the RAA axis and increase proximal tubule sodium and water reabsorption via an AT2 stimulatory effect on the sodium-proton exchange, which limits water delivered distally to the collecting tubules for potential loss in the urine. Side effects. Hypokalemia, hypercalcemia, hyperglycemia, hyperlipidemia, and hyperuricemia. Potassium-sparing diuretics. Potassium-sparing diuretics, for example, spironolactone, eplerinone, amylaride, and triantarine, see figure 15.31, all work on the principal cells because these cells have the final input on potassium excretion. Whenever there is excess sodium delivered here, it will move through the epithelium on the luminal side, the sodium channel ENAC or ENAC into the cell and be pumped out into the paratubular capillaries via the sodium potassium ATPase in exchange for potassium. That potassium will then leak into the lumen of the nephron and be excreted. Aldosterone increases activity of the sodium-potassium ATPase pump and ENAC channel synthesis to facilitate volume repletion by reabsorbing more sodium at the expense of more potassium. This cell's activity can be impeded by two main mechanisms. One, blocking the ENAC for amyloride and triamterine, or two, blocking aldosterone's upregulation of these spells, spironolactone and eplerinone. Uses Spironolactone and eplerinone are used in hyperaldosteronism to prevent the effects of abnormally elevated aldosterone on the kidney, as well as finding use as a general diuretic. Amyloride and triamterine are also used as diuretics if hypokalemia is a concern. Side effects too much of a good thing. Preventing potassium excretion by shutting down the principal cell can lead to hyperkalemia. Also, spironolactone is nonspecific. 
and can also block the testosterone receptor, leading to gynecomastia in men. Eplerinone is aldosterone-specific and does not have this side effect. This concludes Chapter 15. With that, we wrap up today's episode of the Crush Step 1 podcast. A big thank you to Elsevier Incorporated, the publishing company behind Crush Step 1, as well as all of my other books, for allowing us to put out this book in podcast format. Thank you for joining us, and please check out our other chapters. 